This is They Create Worlds, episode 133, Rolling Dice with the Parker Brothers. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alec. Hello. It's time to roll that dice again, Alex. It's time to figure out what it is we're going to be talking about. And while we discuss that, let's play this wonderful Parker Brothers game that I found. Parker Brothers? But aren't they the people behind such hits as Risk, Sorry, and Monopoly? Why, yes, Mr. Alex. Did you know, Mr. Jeffrey that they were also behind some of the biggest hits in the later period of the Atari VCS? Wait, what? That's right. So, if we're bringing out the Parker Brothers games anyway, why don't we just talk about Parker Brothers today? Okay, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, for people born a little later, for people that came up in video games a little later, including Jeffrey and myself, whose heyday really started with the NES in the late 1980s, it's easy to think of the video game industry as something that was pretty much dominated by either Japanese companies like a Nintendo or Sega or homegrown coin-operated companies, computer game companies, electronics companies, companies that were really dedicated to this whole idea of doing video games. For people that are just a little older than us and grew up in the heydays of Atari, the video game industry was actually far more dominated by toy companies than it was by special dedicated video game companies like Atari in the early days. Of course, Mattel was Atari's main competitor in consoles themselves with the Intellivision. The toy company Coleco came in late in the game with their own console to compete. Milton Bradley even jumped on the bandwagon with the Vectrex vector-based console. Then you had Parker Brothers, which did not get involved in creating consoles, but as we'll talk about today, was very, very involved in games. They even actually made a brief foray back into video games in the late 80s, early 90s as well, in that Nintendo-Sega period. During that period, they were a very minor player and really didn't do anything important. But as I said at the top of our episode here, in that 82-83 time period, these guys were one of the hottest companies around. They just unfortunately got in a little too late. Well, obviously, we aren't going to be covering the entire history of Parker Brothers. That's something that goes back into the mystic lands of antiquity. (laughs) Or, at the very least, to 1885. Hey, as far as I'm concerned, that's antiquity. (laughs) That's right. Uh, We could do one of our famous multi-part episodes, like we just did, for instance, with Sinclair, and go into a lot of that kind of prehistory There's certainly sources out there to be able to do that because there have actually been multiple books written about Parker Brothers, but it really was primarily a game company. Not even a toy company primarily, but a game company through most of its history. While we will sketch a little bit to catch us up to the scene, there really isn't enough connection with what they were doing in toys for all that time to make it worth going into that for us like we did with Sinclair, like we did with Coleco, etc. So instead, we'll just very briefly summarize. 
The company was founded in 1885 as the George S. Parker Company. It was named that because the gentleman who founded it was George S. Parker, who was all of 18 years old when he decided to do this. At the time, there was a nascent board game industry in the United States, very, very early stages. But board games were not seen as something that was just out there for everybody to have a good time. Board games were meant to be educational. The education that was most important for a young boy, because, yes, I suspect these were mostly aimed at young boys, the most important lesson for a young boy was how to live a just and moral life within the eyes of the Lord. Just to play devil's advocate here, which Lord? <laughs> well, this is late 19th century America, and a lot of the board game industry is clustered in New England, which still had not strayed terribly too far from its puritanical roots 200 years previous. We're talking about good, upstanding, hardworking Protestants, perhaps a slightly puritanical bent. So board games at the time were about making choices and about doing good things and virtuous things and avoiding temptation. You'd roll dice, you'd move around squares, and you'd try to make sure you were landing on all the good squares and not landing on the bad squares. That was the board game industry in the 1880s. It only existed for a few decades before that. It was still very young. But, you know, it was not Settlers of Catan, that's for sure. George S. Parker was not happy about this. He's a guy that liked games, but he certainly didn't like these board games. He wanted to do something that felt more relevant and more fun, even though it still had some educational elements, perhaps, to it to a very small degree. So he created a board game that was focused around doing the business, not Monopoly. Monopoly, even though it's a Parker Brothers game, has its own whole separate convoluted story that we're not going to get into. Aww. But he created a game focused on entrepreneurship in 1883, just designed it all himself. He tried selling it around. He tried to interest existing board game companies such as they were and other kinds of publishers. Nobody was biting. Nobody wanted it. And finally, one person said, yeah, well, look, kid. Remember, he literally was a kid. Well, look, kid, if you believe in this game so much, found your own company and sell it your own self. And so that's what he did in 1885. He founded the George S. Parker Company. In 1888, his brother Charles Parker came on board to help him run the thing. That's when the company became Parker Brothers. So it's been called Parker Brothers since 1888. The company no longer exists today, but of course Hasbro, who ultimately took over the company after a series of convoluted mergers and acquisitions that we absolutely will discuss later in the hour, or five hours, whatever, still uses the Parker Brothers name on some of its games, but it is actually today just it's Hasbro. Same with Milton Bradley, both of those great board game companies that were such fierce rivals for decades are just both owned by Hasbro now, and they brand some things Milton Bradley and some things Parker Brothers, I think, still. Though maybe it's all just branded Hasbro now, I don't know. For a long time, they used to still brand things Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers, even though they owned both of those trademarks. Today, it may all be Hasbro, I'm not sure. Anywho, the company really was a board game company, 
and a jigsaw puzzle company primarily. That's what they worked in. They worked in ink and cardstock and cardboard and cutting machines and lithograph machines. That's what they did. They didn't really do toys so much. But they had some of the most successful board games out there, including Monopoly, easily the most successful board game of all time. They also invented Risk. They invented Sorry. They did not invent Clue. That is a British game called Cluedo in Europe. But they became the North American publisher of Cluedo. So for all intents and purposes, in North America, they did Clue. So, I mean, these are some of the biggest properties. Milton Bradley being their biggest competitor with most of the other big board game properties of yesteryear. That was really the entire situation for the most part until the 1960s. George Parker remained in charge of the company all the way until 1952. Remember, he was 18 when he founded it, so he was a very young man. He was in charge of the company for over half a century until he finally died in 1952. It remained a family company after that. His son-in-law took over the company at that point, Robert Barton. Barton really wanted to get them out of just being in games. He wanted to diversify them a little bit because the company wasn't going to grow if he didn't. They did get into toys a little bit. Uh, The most famous toy that Parker Brothers ever made was certainly Nerf. Nerf is something that was put out by Parker Brothers in all of its various forms. There was still only so much growth that could be done at this little company in Beverly, Massachusetts. It was in an old, sprawling factory structure that had been built decades before. It was still very focused on a very small product line, and even though those products like Monopoly were very, very successful, it was still, all in all, a very small product line. And there was a new generation coming up behind Robert Barton that really wanted to take the company much, much further. That generation was represented by two cousins, Edward Parker, he is another direct descendant of the founder through the mail line, and Randolph Barton, who was the son of Robert Barton, who was in charge of the company, who generally went by Ranny, R-A-N-N-Y rather than his full name of Randolph. Ranny Barton, in particular, felt that the company needed to grow and change. He spent some time in business school, and he was exposed to a lot of modern management techniques. He felt that the manufacturing was outdated. He felt that the corporate structure was outdated. The building was outdated. Everything was outdated. He felt that In order for the company to grow and thrive, it really needed to change. And I think Eddie Parker was also kind of okay with this kind of thing. You know, basically the entire fortune of the family at this point was really tied up in the company. The company was a closely held company. There really wasn't any margin for error. If Parker Brothers were to go down, then it would basically take the entire extended Parker Barton family with it. That's the kind of situation they found themselves in. So they wanted to be able to expand the company, and there were really only two ways to do that. Go public or be acquired by a larger company. 
really, Robert Barton wasn't very happy with either of these ideas. He was very old school, but he kind of understood that the new generation would need something. So he kind of kept an open mind on this, but really didn't commit to anything. In the meantime, a little company up in Minnesota called the General Mills Corporation comes a-calling. A cereal company. A cereal company, exactly. They got their start in milling, obviously. That's because it's General Mills. And they basically were, through a series of mergers and acquisitions, became a pretty serious monopoly in the milling business, one of the largest millers in the country. Once they could no longer grow that way, they did exactly as you say. They started moving into things like cereals, into consumer products. We've talked about this many times before because we've talked about so many companies, whether it be Tandy or Gulf and Western or Warner Communications that owned Atari. There were so many companies in this period in the 1960s that were conglomerating. Rather than just staying focused on your core business and doing well in your core business and horizontally and vertically integrating in one field, the thought was that it was much better to gobble up companies in all sorts of different fields, ideally where you think you can find a little synergy, but no longer in an area that's really your core competency and get bigger and more profitable in that way. They wanted to move into other areas. They had already kind of gotten into consumer products with the cereals business. So they were looking at other consumer product areas. And of course, they already had some experience with toy manufacturers because cereal had prizes in them. I mean, this isn't high quality, state of the art, brilliant toy manufacturing of the first order. This isn't making Barbie dolls and G.I. Joes. This is cheap little plastic things at the bottom of the cereal box, now including flesh-eating bacteria. Wait, what? That's a Simpsons reference. Trustios, now with flesh-eating bacteria in every box. That doesn't sound safe. (laughs) Definitely not. So, you know, these were cheap little toys, but that's kind of what led them in that direction. Remember when you're conglomerating you're not really looking at things that you're deeply involved in. You're looking at things that you're tangentially involved in and figuring, why not get a little more involved with that tangential thing? So they're like, okay, hey, let's, you know, we kind of deal in toys already. We're looking to expand into other consumer products. There's a whole new generation of baby boomers that are needing toys. So there's a growing youth population. It's expected that the toy business is going to expand to meet this need. Let's do toys. So they look at Parker Brothers. It's not the only company. They buy the company in Ohio that makes Play-Doh. That's one of their first purchases. But Parker Brothers is the premier board game company. And their earnings are steady as clockwork. Because, of course, a publicly traded corporation like General Mills values predictability. Even though the toy business is a real up-and-down faddish business, Parker Brothers is primarily in games and puzzles. That business is a little more predictable. They still have their fads. You still have a board game that really takes off this year. They are in toys a little bit, so you get a little bit of that faddishness. But their staple products, like Monopoly, like Risk, are so predictable and regular 
that they are a consistently good performer in a consistently unstable business. And so that attracts General Mills. A corporate VP there really pushes really, really hard for the company to sell out. Barton is just kind of like, I don't know. He doesn't say no. He stalls, he stalls, he stalls. Eddie Parker and Randy Barton really want to do this. I think Robert Barton knows deep down that eventually he's going to have to let him, but he can't bring himself to do it. He likes the fact that it's this small family-owned company up in New England. Meanwhile, since they're being rebuffed by Parker Brothers, General Mills goes a different direction and they purchase Kenner, which is a toy company, not a game company, but a toy company based in Cincinnati, Ohio. Finally, after a couple of years of this back and forth, Barton is finally ready to let the younger generation take over. So he calls back General Mills and they negotiate. And in 1968, Parker Brothers is sold to General Mills for $47.5 million. That's in 1968 money. It was way above the valuation of Parker Brothers as a company. It was a pretty sweet deal for them. Since Barton was so reluctant to sell, he really wanted to make sure that they got enough money to secure the entire family's future, irrespective of what happened with the Parker Brothers company afterwards. General Mills was so keen to have such a steady, reliable performer in terms of profits that they were willing to take the plunge. And at the end of the day, that really was pretty small money still for a big conglomerate like General Mills. So they come to the deal. Robert Barton retires. Edward Parker becomes the president. Ranny Barton becomes the executive vice president and is given a broad mandate to enact some of the changes he wants to make. He fires uh, several long-term executives at the company, including the head of manufacturing, which was another cousin, different last name. His last name was Bacall, but still part of the Parker descent just through another mail line. They even fire a cousin. They fire a few other top people. He brings in a lot of MBAs, and he brings in a lot of General Mills people. General Mills is very corporate, very MBA-driven, which is becoming more common in this period in bigger conglomerates like General Mills, but isn't necessarily the norm at every company around the United States. I mean, today, you know, you can't swing a dead cat on Wall Street without hitting an MBA. It wasn't quite that way in the 60s. They're modernizing the the production lines. In the 1970s, they eventually move into a brand new corporate headquarters in nearby Salem, Massachusetts. They're really just modernizing the entire company in this period. They're expanding the Nerf line. They're getting the board games where they can. They're moving more and more into plastics, which is not something that they had really been involved in before, but they're trying to push more into toys as well. They uh, now have corporate overlords in Minnesota as part of a big, non-differentiated, non-foods division, which grows to include other things. I don't know exactly when the purchases were. I could look it up, but they buy the Izod clothing line. They buy Talbots, which is a clothing retailer. So they have all sorts of fashion companies. They have four toy and game companies, the Play-Doh company, another small company, and then the crown jewels are Kenner and Parker Brothers. All of these companies continue to run independently, but with overlords in Minnesota that they ultimately answer to. Minnesota mostly keeps its hands off of things. At first, there was a lot of hovering 
kind of the Parker people said, you got to stop letting all these people come out and taking tours and poking at everything because it's just distracting and it's not working. So the General Mills people, knowing they're not good at toys anyway, and trusting a company like Parker Brothers that's been so successful to kind of manage their own affairs, they kind of back off. It's pretty loose ownership control at this point. Edward Parker remains in charge of the company until 1974 when he is, I'm not sure if he was diagnosed that year, but around that time he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. He was a pretty young guy. I mean, they weren't expecting another management transition at this time, but he had the cancer. So in 1974, Ranny Barton actually becomes president of the company. I've actually interviewed Ranny Barton, and I've interviewed a couple of other people at Parker Brothers, too. The sense that I get of Ranny Barton as a CEO is that he wasn't particularly a standout in any specific area. He wasn't a brilliant product man or a brilliant marketer or a financial whiz or any of that. He did know how to surround himself with very good people. He did have very modern ideas for the time on how to run a company, and he was very good at managing the General Mills relationship and making General Mills people back in Minnesota feel like they were a part of the whole process and were fully engaged in the business without them actually coming over and meddling too much. He was kind of a good, even keel, keep the ship on course kind of manager, even if he wasn't necessarily one of the greatest businessmen of all time. And that may sound like I'm damning with faint praise, but I'm really not trying to. I just kind of giving a sense of where he kind of fit into this whole corporate hierarchy, which is about to get a whole lot more complicated. If there's one thing that Ranny Barton wanted to do above all else, it was modernize the company, which he did have an opportunity to do, as we've already talked about. The other thing that he really wanted to do is really show how great and powerful and valuable a company it could be to General Mills by pushing absolutely outstanding growth. He wanted Parker Brothers to become a $100 million company within just a few years. At this time in 1974, it was nowhere near an $100 million company. So he was looking for phenomenal quick growth. This is why Parker Brothers very quickly gets into that exciting new field that's developing at this time, which is the handheld and tabletop electronics market. Now, we've talked about this market before. We've talked about Mattel. We've talked about Coleco. Probably mentioned Milton Bradley Simon a time or two. Just as a kind of very basic recap to this, you had video games coming onto the scene in the early 1970s in Coinop, and they were beginning to make their way into home products like Atari's Home Pong Machine by 1975. Yes, of course, the Odyssey had been around for years before that, but it was not really a big hit. This is the first time in the middle of the decade that they are really actually becoming must-have purchases by consumers. Video games were very expensive. They were between $50 and $100, probably an average of around $70, for these shiny new video games. That was not something that toy stores or toy companies dealt in. It was very rare to see a toy above $30. 
a company like Parker Brothers, which was more into games than into big play sets or whatever, they really usually didn't do toys above 5 or $10. I mean, toy companies did really cheap products and sold a lot of them on really thin margins, and that's how they made their money. There weren't a lot of national toy stores at this time. Obviously, the department stores like Sears had toy sections, and those would get bigger at Christmas. But a lot of the toy companies in the country were kind of little mom-and-pop places that may only buy five or six or seven of a specific SKU, stock-keeping unit, to put out on the shelves to entice the very small number of parents that would be coming by for a birthday gift or something like that, you know, outside of the Christmas season, which is when the toy industry did the majority of its business. You're dealing with small companies. Toys R Us is around, but it's only starting to become a real big thing. You're dealing with a lot of small companies that have razor-thin margins themselves. They're not going to invest in a lot of very expensive product. This is why a lot of the early video games were showing up in sporting goods departments, in television departments, or what passed for consumer electronics departments at this time, because those were the areas that were used to dealing in high-ticket items. It was clear to the toy companies as well that this whole electronic game thing was new and exciting, and they wanted to have a piece of that too. They just didn't necessarily want to go as expensive as a video game. That's why you got these cheaper, smaller, more limited handheld and tabletop electronics products, initially usually based around LED displays or blinking light displays of some kind. Mattel got there first with their football and auto race games in 1977. By then, Parker Brothers wasn't too far behind in their own R&D efforts because they needed fast growth. Bill Dorman, the head of R&D at the company, realized that if they're going to get growth fast, they need to get into new areas, and it looks like electronic handhelds are going to be one of the new areas. The impetus to actually finally get into this business actually came from outside the company. There were two astrophysicists at Harvard, a husband and a wife named Robert and Holly Doyle, who were kind of done with the whole astrophysics thing and thought that they could reinvent themselves by being consultants in this new emerging electronic games business. So, of course, Harvard, that's a Massachusetts institution. Parker Brothers is in Massachusetts. They come by and pitch some of their ideas in 1975 to Bill Dorman at Parker Brothers, the head of R&D. At that time, Dorman doesn't really want anything to do with it. That's a little early. The game ideas were not that great, quite frankly. The initial ideas the Doyles had were not particularly good. He was kind of like, you know, nah, thanks, but no thanks. And they were like, well, you know, if you change your mind, you know where to find us. And it's like, yeah, yeah, great, whatever. At that point, then, the Mattel game comes out in 77, the football game that's so successful, as well as Auto Race and a couple of others. Then they realized, oh, well, I guess we better do this, especially since we have such aggressive growth targets. So Dorman gets back in touch. The Doyles come back in. He's like, okay, fine. Uh, We're going to do something. Uh, Tell me what you got. What they got was a pretty uninteresting board game, electronic game hybrid 
that during production was called by the somewhat catchy name Sink the Sub, but by the time it was actually released in stores, would go by the completely incomprehensible and incredibly lame name, code name, Sector. Never heard of that one. That was before our time. This came out in 1977. It was a massive failure, so it immediately, it's not like it was something that they were continuing to make years later like Milton Bradley did with Simon, which you could still buy in our time and you could still buy well past our time as children. Codename Sector. I mean, you can tell by the prototype name Sync the Sub what the idea of the game was. There was a sub. It was moving around in the water. You had to find the sub with your fleet of ships and sink it. Sink the sub. It makes sense. Now, if I came up to you and said, I've got this brand new board game and it's called Codename Sector. Would you have any idea what that game was about? I had to figure out the code name in a sector? That's a good guess based on the name and completely and utterly and totally wrong. Some sort of word game? Right, exactly. I mean, those are the exact kind of things you would think. It's a submarine game. I have literally no idea why they made the decision to call it that, but I know it was a bad one. But it wasn't just the name that made it a hard sell. It was pretty expensive because it had both a board game component and an electronic game component. It was, quite frankly, too hard. Kind of the computer moved the sub around. You have your fleet on the board, and then the computer, the electronic component, I mean, it's not a full powerful computer, but the electronic component knew where the sub was, and as you moved around and tried to figure out where the sub was and gave it coordinates and information, it would give you hints to try to triangulate where the sub was so you could kill it. It turned out that the computer opponent was way too difficult. It was just tuned way too hard. So it was a difficult game. It was a clunky game. It was an expensive game, and it had a name that made no kind of sense at all. Plus, to add insult to injury, that exact same toy season, 1977 holiday season, Milton Bradley came out with Electronic Battleship the electronic version of their classic battleship two-player competitive board game. You know, electronic battleship didn't have much going for it over normal battleship. They just kind of used special effects to make it seem cooler or whatever. Not only do you have an expensive, clunky, hard-to-play, incomprehensible submarine game on the market where you're trying to sink ships, but you have a better electronic ship game coming out at the exact same time. So, yeah, that was a complete and utter disaster. Parker Brothers knew they had to keep trying. Even though that one did not go well, the electronic game industry was blowing up. 77 was a huge year for electronic games. It was very clear that 1978 was going to be even even bigger year for electronic games. And remember, we're still talking about a company that wants to become on a $100 million massive corporation within the General Mills conglomerate. So Dorman sticks with the Doyles because they don't have anybody else. They don't have anyone on staff. They don't have electronics people. So he sticks with the Doyles and they're like, okay, what else have you got? And maybe we could make it a little cheaper this time. So the Doyles were like, I got the thing for you. You ever heard of a little game called Tic-Tac-Toe? Yes. What if we did tic-tac-toe, but you played against the computer? And we'll call it 3T, because tic-tac-toe, 
That's three words. They all begin with T. Three T. How's that sound? You're fired. <laughs> well, hold on. Now, wait a minute. Three T is not just tic-tac-toe in space. It's far more sophisticated. How sophisticated? Well, it learns as it plays, you see, and it'll change its strategy as you keep going. With what memory? Well, I mean, it's going to have a little memory. It'll be great. Honest. Well, obviously, reset even if it does actually learn something the second the batteries get pulled. Exactly. <laughs> so Dorman's like, um, thanks, but could we try something else? It'll have those LEDs people like. That's great, but could we maybe try something else? They were like, well, I don't know. We don't really have anything else, but maybe we could make it play a few more games? Keep talking. That's about as far as the Doyles got on their own. This was all happening in the fall of 1977. They were going to have to have a product ready to go within the next few months if they were going to have something that they could manufacture in quantity before Christmas 1978. At this point, Dorman and the Doyles were kind of stuck with each other. But they were saved by an in-house developer at Parker Brothers by the name of Arthur Venditti. Arthur Venditti had invented a simple thing. He didn't have a game yet, but he invented something called PEGS, P-E-G-S, which stood for the Parker Electronic Games System. It was basically a take on the same idea as Electronic Battleship at Milton Bradley, where you had a two-sided board. Then as both sides made moves on this board, it would light up the various spaces on the board, it could do these different patterns of light. What they did is they combined these two things. They took the 3T thing that the Doyles had come up with, they combined it with this PEGS system that Venditti had come up with. They came up with a system that instead of just playing tic-tac-toe, though they did keep that in there, could also do a lot of games based on repeating patterns of lights and sounds, you know, the machine doing lights and sounds and the players mimicking some of those lights and sounds, a little similar to Simon, which was in development at the exact same time, but it wasn't based on musical notes and only four of them. There were more spaces and more patterns, more complex stuff. So it was similar to Simon, but it was in no way a copy of Simon. And the two games really were developed in parallel. They were both released in 1978. One wasn't really copying the other. So they come up with a toy, which of course we'll put in the show notes, that has a very distinctive shape. It almost looks like a futuristic kind of cordless phone thing is kind of the best way to describe it. It has a speaker on one end, it has the main buttons in the middle, and then it has a few other buttons on the lower end kind of looks like it would almost be a telephone. It plays tic-tac-toe. It has a music player. It just lets you push the buttons to make musical notes and then record it, and then it'll play it back. It has a blackjack game. It has a light and sound pattern mimicking game called Echo that is very similar to Simon. It has a game similar to the board game Mastermind, which is that you have a certain number of random pegs of different colors, and then by process of elimination, you figure out 
what the sequence of colors is, and they didn't do this with colors, they did this with lights, but it's the same idea as Mastermind. And they had a game called Magic Square, which is similar to a game called Lights Out, which is where a certain number of buttons start off lit up. Then your job is to get all of the lights turned off. Different buttons on the panel, if you press them, will turn on and off different sequences of lights. So what you have to do is figure out the correct sequence of buttons to press to get all the lights out. Even today, some video games, some RPGs and adventure games and whatnot will still sometimes use similar puzzles. You probably come across stuff like that here or there in your life. Yeah, I just think of all of those times in Resident Evil where you had this really arbitrary puzzle just to open a door. (laughs) Sure. So at this point, it's still called 3T, and it's still kind of languishing within Parker Brothers. People just aren't thrilled with it. Then it comes to the attention of a young product manager by the name of Richard Stearns. I talked a little bit ago about how Ranny Barton really wanted to modernize Parker Brothers, that this is one of the key things he was doing in this time period. One of the things that he imported from General Mills, in addition to a bunch of MBAs, was something that General Mills itself imported from its major competitor, Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, which had invented a new role within a corporation called a product manager. Product management, or rather brand management as they called it, brand management was this idea that if you had a brand, like in the case of Procter & Gamble, Tide detergent or ivory soap, you would have a person in charge of that brand whose entire job was to manage that brand. They would choose how that brand was marketed. They would choose how it was sold. They would make sure that every time that that brand was mentioned that everything was consistent and on message. Somebody who would take a product from the R&D stage, from the development stage, all the way through the sales and marketing stage and be responsible for that brand. Procter & Gamble was the company that really pioneered that. General Mills stole the idea for brand management from Procter & Gamble. And then Parker Brothers, Randy Barton, took the idea from General Mills, though They didn't really have brands per se, or rather they didn't think of their toys as brands. Certainly today we would identify Nerf as a brand, and even Monopoly is a brand because they do so many variants. They didn't think in terms of brands in the toy industry, but they did think in terms of products because, of course, you're always developing new toy ideas, new products. So then the idea is you bring in a new person called a product manager who is a kind of marketing-focused guy but who's working with the R&D people from the very beginning and then bringing it along. Obviously, product management is something that becomes very prevalent in the software industry as well. Product managers in the software industry aren't necessarily usually marketing people. They're usually senior engineers or programmers that kind of understand how to manage other employees in a development environment to make sure that stuff gets done on time. But this whole project management idea continues to roll downhill into more and more industries as time goes on, but it's actually still very new at this time in the 1970s. So Rich Stearns is one of these young go-getters that's brought into the company as a product manager, and he's looking for product because... It's their job to be the point men. They're not just told, hey, we're working on this product, go product manage it. That certainly happens sometimes if something's in development, but product managers also need to find the product themselves. So Stearns is hanging around R&D. 
he sees this 3T game that everyone says is no fun, but is doing more at this point than just tic-tac-toe. He sees it and he's like, no, this is really fun. This is actually really, really cool fun. He's a guy that's into games. He's even into video games. He's into technology. He thinks this is great. So he decides to be the product manager. He goes straight to the head of sales and marketing at the company, Ron Jackson, who is kind of Ranny Barton's right-hand man. He is very enthused about the electronics category in general. So Stearns goes to him and says, they're making this great thing and we got to do it. And so Jackson says, okay, go ahead, write a memo and we'll see. He gets marketing on board. They get a chip from Texas Instrument that is really versatile and allows them to do all this nifty stuff they want to do. It turns the entire project around. They're still calling it 3T at this point, though, which is a really ruddy name for it. Stearns does not like that at all. So he's trying to come up with another name, and they're just not coming up with anything. They can't think of anything. They're trying things like Challenger or Adversary to give the idea that you're playing against the computer, but those are kind of bland, and plus, they're kind of threatening because computers and electronics are still new. So the idea of an adversary or a challenger, it's like it's one step from there to the Cylons wiping out humanity. Yeah, not to mention that, especially in the 40s, 50s, 60s, there's a lot of science fiction out there that touts the dangers of technology, the dangers of artificial intelligence, the danger of computers. Exactly. Captain Kirk had to make a lot of computers explode by getting them caught in logic paradoxes. (laughs) So they didn't want that. Then they're trying something that feels more, uh, less threatening, I should say. They try to find something less threatening and they're like, well, you know, computers, technology are like things people have never seen before. So they're kind of like, they're almost like magic. He tried magic and he's like, well, no. Then he goes through a bunch of others like hoodoo, voodoo, all of these synonyms for magic. That isn't working. He decides that he needs like a proper name. When I say proper, I mean like, you know, like Bob, like a proper name rather than a description. So he starts running down magical names and finally he settles on Merlin. Merlin, really? Like the wizard from Camelot? Exactly. He just likes the name Merlin. He's going through all sorts of things. He's thinking Aladdin. He's thinking sorcerer, witch all sorts of things, and he just likes the sound of Merlin. So in 1978, they release this game system as Merlin. It is a humongous success. It is not the best-selling game of 1978 because it comes out the same year as Simon, and Simon dwarfs everything else. But it still sells 700,000 units which for a toy in that time period is positively remarkable. It is a massive hit because of that and because of the continued enthusiasm for electronic games because this is a way to grow the company and make the company really, really big. Parker Brothers is now firmly in the electronic games business. And it's just a small hop, jump, and leap away from the video game industry. Absolutely. Merlin was a massive hit. Ranny Barton was now well on his way to having that $100 million company he'd always wanted. 
problem is that this market, as we've discussed before, didn't last too long. Merlin was a huge hit in 78. It was a huge hit again in 79. It was maybe not so much a huge hit in 1980. Some of the other games, none of which are really worth mentioning, were not so much big hits in 1980. By 1981 Toy Fair, it was clear that the handheld-slash-tabletop electronic game market was well and truly dead. Of course, a large part of the reason that that market had died a fiery death is because Atari had come along in 1980 with their fancy-pants Space Invaders port to the VCS. Suddenly, the only thing in electronic games was video games. All of those price concerns that toy buyers and toy companies had had before were swept away by these new invaders. The market that Parker Brothers was in was completely run out. At that point... Richard Stearns, our product manager of Merlin and the games that came after it in the electronic field, was taken off of the electronic games. The electronic games were kind of shuffled over to the board game marketing side of the business where they could die a quiet death, and Stearns was put on finding the next big thing because he had done such a great job of figuring out that Merlin was the next big thing in 1977, 1978. So he was put on finding what comes next. He had no doubt at that point that what was going to come next was video games. As I mentioned previously in the episode, Stearns himself was actually a video game player. He knew what was going on in the arcades. He knew what some of the hit products were. He knew that these were fun things. Now that the console market had really come into its own following the launch of Space Invaders and some of the follow-up product from Atari and Mattel, he knew that the time had come to get into this new field. Of course, he had a lot of people he needed to convince about that above him as well, because there was this whole apparatus from Randy Barton at Parker Brothers on up to the toy group at General Mills, and everyone in this massive conglomerate needed to be on the same page. There had been a lot of changes in the upper levels of the company as well over this period of time. For the entirety of the toy group's existence, and before it was the toy group and the kind of more generalized non-foodstuffs division of General Mills, there had never been an actual toy executive in charge at that level. Kenner and Parker and the Play-Doh people and all of that, they had toy veterans obviously in charge of them, but they had never been their own thing until 1978 when the toy group was formed out of this non-foodstuffs thing, and it was decided that a toy person should lead it. The person that was chosen to be in charge of the new toy group was actually Kenner's president, Bernard Loomis. I think the primary reason that Loomis was picked for this is that he had had the extremely good wisdom to accept a license that had been turned down by Mattel and several other toy companies for this strange new movie coming out in 1977 called, like, I think, The Star Wars? Eh, no one ever cared about something called Star Wars 
or the Star Wars. Or, I mean, really, if you're going to have stars fighting, you might as well just have a Star Wars because there's only going to be one of these things, not like, I don't know, nine and a series <laughs> of books and comics and entertainment media. No, it's just a Star Wars and it just ended in sadness and despair. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we'll never hear about that one again. You know, licensed toys had never been particularly successful at that point in history. There had been some toy licenses done. Nothing that had really just become anything all of that big at all, which is why Mattel, when given a first bite at the Star Wars Apple, turned it down. But Bernie Loomis saw something. I'm sure even he didn't realize what it would truly become, but he still saw something. He decided to take a chance on this franchise. He thought that there was a good toy thing there, and so he took a very cheap, I mean very cheap license to make toys for this new movie. Very famously changed the action figure industry when he, during the design phase, when he was asked, well, how big should he make him? And he spread his fingers, and he said, should be this high. They measured the span, and it was three and three-quarters inches, which of course, became the new standard for action figures throughout uh, the 1980s. There were bigger action figures like He-Man as well, but G.I. Joe, for instance, another three and three quarters action figure. Star Wars started that. The Star Wars line at Kenner started that. The Star Wars toys became incredibly, incredibly successful. And in a real stroke of marketing genius, Kenner decided that because they could not have the toys ready for 1977 holiday, and, of course, holiday is the biggest time for the toy industry, they actually sent out IOUs that people could get in stores, good to redeem the action figures when they finally came out in 1978. It was an absolute frenzy because, of course, Star Wars blew up big. It was a pop culture phenomenon. The kids loved it. And the characters were just so easy to turn into toys, into things the kids wanted to play with. Everyone wanted to be Luke Skywalker and... Princess Leia and Han Solo and everyone wanted to fight Darth Vader and have the droids following along behind them and fly an X-Wing. So, I mean, these toys, they basically marketed themselves and became a humongous hit that transformed the entire toy industry. Kenner was right at the heart of that, having this license. And so as a reward for that, when the toy group was created in 1978, Bernard Loomis was placed in charge of it. This was, for Parker Brothers, basically a disaster. Loomis, having come from Kenner, was very clearly more interested in Kenner and more interested in Kenner's success than Parker Brothers. We have to remember as well that even though we think of both of these companies as toy companies, as we kind of said before, Kenner was the real toy company. They're the ones that are having to come up with a new line of playthings every year, catching the latest crazes to create the toys the kids play with, whereas Parker Brothers is really a game company. Board games, jigsaw puzzles. They have Nerf, but they're more games. It's a very different kind of corporate philosophy. If you want to sort of think of it more like how software is, it's almost like the board games, the puzzle games are sort of the evergreen product. Right. They sell regularly. They sell at a constant rate. You always have that little trickle of money coming in. They're not going to pull in the mega millions, the really big thing those hits are. That's when Kenner comes in. All right, this year it's going to be hula hoops. Next year it's going to be bouncy balls. Third year it's going to be the bouncing hula hoop. Fourth year, <laughs> the bouncing hula hoop with Action Man. 
Whatever it is. <laughs> and then next year, Action Man, but with a hat. Of course. You have to have a new hat. <laughs> if you don't have a new hat, you can't sell Malibu steak, I mean. Yes. So, so there was a real conflict there, and Bernie Loomis was very much a uh, control freak type. Do what I want to do. Do it now. Do it my way. Randy Barton at Parker Brothers was very much more consensus-driven. He had a management team. He had assembled this group of MBAs that he was very proud of. He wanted all of them to have input into how his company was run. And so there was a real culture clash in these few years here between 78 and 1981 when Loomis was forced out of the toy group, basically because Barton said that if Loomis was going to be continue to be in charge, then Barton was not going to stay at Parker Brothers. Barton was very well respected by the General Mills management because he had done a very good job of ingratiating himself with upper management in Minnesota. At that point, they shuffled Loomis aside. They didn't fire him, but they gave him a new group, a new R&D group that he could have all the direct control over he wanted and try to come up with the next big thing for the company. It went by the acronym MAD, which from at least the Barker Brothers uh, people's perspective was a perfect name for something that (laughs) Bernie Loomis would be in charge of. At the point that Stearns is deciding that they need to get into video games, there's a new person in charge of the toy group. Once again, it's a non-toy person named Jim Fifield. At this time, there are a few different things going on. You have Stearns, who's been taking off handheld games and is convinced that video games are going to be the next big thing. To aid him in his quest to make sure that Parker Brothers gets this right, he enlists the aid of a much older executive, 10 years older than him. Rich Stearns is 30 at this point, so Bracey's 40. We're not talking about ancient people, but still, there's a real generation gap here. By the name of Bill Bracey. Bracey's a rather conservative individual. I believe he's a Mormon. I know he's from Utah. He had actually been brought into the company by Bernie Loomis. Bernie Loomis had been trying to push international sales. Bracey was a marketing guy that he had sent to Europe. And then when Loomis stepped down and was no longer in charge of the toy group, Bracey joined Parker Brothers, but they didn't really have a place for him. They named him manager of special projects. But in this case, that was basically just We have this guy, we need a home for him, and he needs a title, so we'll just call him the special guy. We're going to stick him in this out-of-the-way cubicle in the purchasing department. Even though, as manager of special projects, he is presumably going to be involved in R&D and or marketing of special projects, they just tuck him in a corner of purchasing and basically forget about him. (laughs) He did try to involve himself. He tried to get out of his little cubicle and interact with other people in the company in sales and marketing and R&D. He and Stearns had discovered each other and hit it off. Since Bracey didn't have a home, Stearns gave him a home and basically said, the two of us are going to get Parker Brothers into the video game business. So that became their plan to come up with a marketing plan in order to move into this area. At the same time, there was another individual Parker Brothers by the name of Philip Orbanes who was head of R&D and a true toy design prodigy. He sold his first toy at 16. 
to a toy company. He wasn't like the one selling the toy to the public. He sold his first toy at 16. Or Baines had independently taken it upon himself to come up with the next big thing. And he was also convinced that that was going to be video games. And so he got some tech people together and started doing some reverse engineering on the Atari VCS, completely separate from what Rich Stearns was doing. Then while all this is going on, Lucasfilm, George Lucas, comes back to Kenner and says, you know, we've had a great partnership on this toy thing with Star Wars, and your stuff's doing really great, you've treated us really well. We're about ready to sell the video game rights, the home video game rights to Star Wars as well. I know you probably don't want them because you're not in the video game business. I know we're probably going to end up selling these on to Atari because they're the big name and they have all the money. But since we've done so well together, we figured as a courtesy, we'd tell you that we're doing this on the off chance that maybe you'd want to get involved. Then it's like, okay, well, now we have to get involved in video games. I mean, Star Wars has been huge in toys. Can you imagine when we sell the video games with the video game industry exploding and growing at a rate that far exceeds the growth of the traditional toy industry in this period? It's like we've got to get involved. Which is why we, of course, saw the fantastic Star Wars video game from Kenner and Parker Brothers bringing together wonder Oh wait. <laughs> well... Jim Fifield, the new head of the toy group, he saw the dollar signs too. He was a very ambitious guy. He thought that if this video game thing took off, it could be a big enough driver of profits at General Mills, at the parent company, that he might be able to ride video games straight into the CEO position at corporate. The big job. It's known that within the next couple of years, Bruce Otwasser who is currently the CEO, is going to start looking for a successor, is going to move on up to chairman and choose someone else to be CEO and start a transition. So Fifield sees an opportunity. But he also knows that he can't have all of these different groups within the larger General Mills toy group just going willy-nilly into video games because that would just be chaos and they'd end up stepping on each other's toes. It would just be a bad time. Basically, they had a big meeting. Both Parker Brothers and Kenner and this new mad R&D group under Bernie Loomis that was attached to neither company were each told to give their best proposal on how to enter the video game business. They each came up with a different way of doing things. Bernie Loomis had the most outlandish plan. He was basically like, We'll build our own video game system with blackjack and hookers. And it was really complicated and really like, just why? Atari already has so much of the market. Mattel is already there as a kind of second fiddle. And then, you know, off in its own little corner, you even have Magnavox. Loomis's plan seemed very not concrete, was very light on details, very pie in the sky. It was going to be a huge R&D effort. Are they really going to beat out Atari and Mattel at this point anyway? Come on now. Kenner was basically like, well, you know, we can get this Star Wars license that Lucasfilm is dangling in front of us, and then we can sub-license to Atari or somebody else, and they can put in all the effort, 
and we can just collect a nice royalty check. That's not the worst idea in the world. I mean, there are plenty of companies that do that. I mean, there were plenty of coin-op companies, for instance, that didn't want to get involved in home video games, like Taito with Space Invaders and Atari, that were just like, we don't want to get involved in this whole new area. We've got the hot property. We'll just sit back and let the royalties roll in, and, and we'll make some money, and you'll put in all the effort. But remember, Jim Fifield, he wants to ride the video game profits straight into the CEO's office. While Kenner's plan would certainly make the company some money, it's not going to make CEO money. It's going to make, well, isn't that a nice little profit thing over there in the corner kind of money. But Parker Brothers, Parker Brothers had the comprehensive plan because by this time, Stearns and Orbanes have gotten together. So Stearns really knows video games. He and Bracey really understand how the market works, how much money this thing can potentially make. They've got the solid projections. Orbanes has done the preliminary technological work showing that reverse engineering the VCS will absolutely be feasible. So in their presentation, they say, no, here's what we do. We reverse engineer the VCS, the biggest platform on the market, and we make our own games on the VCS, make them ourselves, market them ourselves. Using my knowledge, this being Stearns, of the video game industry, we're going to get the hottest arcade licenses that we possibly can, complemented by some of these other licenses we have, like the huge Star Wars license, and we are going to release incredibly successful cartridges, and we are going to make all the money. Byfield's like, I want all the money. We're doing it that way. So Parker Brothers becomes the entity that is going to be involved in video games. At the cost, however, of a lot of Parker Brothers' traditional independence. Under the original manager of the toy companies, before it was the toy group, under Swanson, they were basically allowed to do their own thing. Randy Barton had done such a good job of ingratiating himself with upper management that they were basically allowed to run without much interference. Loomis had been very interfering, but... Barton was kind of able to work around that, again, because he had the confidence of the people in Minnesota, who Loomis ultimately had to answer to as well. But Fifield, Fifield sees this as his golden ticket. So Fifield starts exerting a lot of direct control over exactly how Parker Brothers is going to do this whole video game thing. First of all, he mandates that it's going to be its own division. They actually divisionalize Parker Brothers into an electronics game division and a non-electronic games, for lack of a better word, division. These two organizations will have their own R&D. They will have their own sales force. They will have their own marketing. Just two completely separate organizations within Parker Brothers. The Electronic Games Group, which is going to inherit whatever little handheld stuff is still ongoing as well, is going to be run by Richard Stearns. So Stearns, all of 30 years old, is now one of the most powerful men in the company. He's been given one of two divisions reporting directly into the top of the company. Bill Bracey will be his number two in sales and marketing and all of that. They'll assemble an R&D group to put the finishing touches on reverse engineering the VCS and to start making games. So they have the Star Wars license. They've got that one. 
via Kenner that gets worked out. Bracey and Stearns start going around to the arcade, start playing everything, start figuring out what else is going to be big that they can get their hands on. Some stuff is just already gone. Obviously, Atari is going to do all of its own products. That stuff's out of reach. Namco is already in with Atari on Pac-Man, so they're not going to be able to get quite the biggest games in the market. But they might be able to get some mid-range games and some lower-end games, licenses from Japan and elsewhere. Right, and so the game that they settle upon that's going to be their big launch title, side-by-side with a Star Wars game, is the current hit game from Sega, Frogger. Now, I know, I know, stop right there, record scratch. Yes, I know Frogger was created by Konami. But Sega had the worldwide manufacturing and distribution rights to Frogger. In the United States, Frogger was, as far as anyone knew, a Sega game. Sega planned to take full advantage of this by doing the licensing of Frogger themselves. It actually became quite a tussle between Sega and Konami. There were lawsuits over this at the end of the day. Even though Frogger was technically a Konami game, it was via Sega that the company was going to acquire this license. Stearns goes to David Rosen, who we may recall from our many Sega episodes, is the co-founder of Sega Enterprises and the head of the company, and makes an offer for the rights to Frogger. Rosen's like, okay, thank you very much. The board will discuss. We have several offers. We'll look into it. Turns out, after that process is all done, that David Rosen calls him back and says, Richard, I'm sorry, but we have chosen to go another direction. I don't think we know which company it was, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was Coleco, because Coleco had the rights to other hit Sega games like Turbo and Zaxxon. So it makes sense that they also had Frogger, but I don't think we actually know who Sega decided to go with. Stearns is seeing the whole thing vanishing here because they know they need something big. This is about the biggest thing that they can get of the games that are currently out there and not taken already. He basically says, you know, is your board still there? I mean, can they reconvene if we come back with a better offer? Rosen said, yeah, I I suppose we can do that. Stearns gets authorization to offer $500,000 up front for the license. Parker Brothers had never offered more than a quarter of a million for anything before. Half a million was a huge amount of money to offer for a license in that period of time. So Rosen gets off the phone with him and says, you know, let me get the board back together. I'll call you very shortly. Rosen calls back and says, congratulations, you have won the Frogger license. You know, this reminds me very much of E.T. and the whole licensing shenanigans that went on there. But remember, E.T. was licensed for $21 million up front. Frogger was licensed for half a million up front. This is far more similar, if, if you want to draw a parallel, to the Coleco situation you may remember from our ColecoVision episode when Coleco thought they had Donkey Kong licensed, then learned that Nintendo was going to turn around and give it to Atari anyway, and then Eric Bromley basically begged and pleaded with Hirochi Amauchi to uh, be like, Please give this to us. We need this game, and because we need it, we'll take such good care of the property, and you really want to go with us instead. The amount she was like, okay, we'll do that. In this case, it wasn't just a plea. It was, by the way, we'll double our offer. 
it's kind of the same thing, snatching a license at the last minute, probably from Coleco, which makes it even more kind of <laughs> ironic in this sense. So they put some ads out in the local papers. They get some programmers in. You know, they're in Massachusetts, MIT's in Massachusetts. There are tech people in that part of the world, even if it's not Silicon Valley. They get a few programmers in. They get some designers in, like Coleco. Some of their games are done by two people, one who does more programming, one who does more design. I don't think that was the case of all of their products, but it was the case in some of them. They get two games ready for... Holiday 1982, one of them being Frogger, programmed by Ed English, and the other being The Empire Strikes Back, which was based solely around the Battle of Hoth and the Snowspeeders attacking the Adat Walkers. Knowing that they needed to make a huge splash in a crowded, crowded field, they spend $10 million dollars advertising these games in 1982. Huge marketing rollout. They have an absolutely huge success. They sell 3 million cartridges between the two games. I don't know how that split between them. I don't know if one was 2 million and one was 1 million, if they sold 1.5 million each. No sources at the time ever gave the breakdown between the two, but the two games together sold 3 million cartridges in 1982. Even though this is the period when the video game industry is starting to fall apart, it goes great for Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers is rolling in dough at the end of 1982, and they are ready to go even stronger in 1983. This is where the problems come in for Parker Brothers. Because, of course, 1983 is the year that everything completely falls apart. 1982 was more of a, a harbinger of things to come. 1983 is when the actual bloodbath within the industry occurred. This is the exact period of time that Parker Brothers is going to go all in on video games. So they get some licenses, and they get some good licenses. They get the Qbert license. Qbert was one of the biggest coin-operated games to come out in 1982, and more important than that, it was another one of these games that was turned into a transmedia property. There was lots of merchandising. There was a Saturday morning cartoon, just like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong before it. Not only was it selling a lot of units in the arcade, but it was entering the broader consciousness. It didn't have nearly the staying power as Pac-Man and Donkey Kong did long term because it was doing all of this right before the industry was falling apart. Qbert was actually a pretty big deal. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you, you remember the game itself. I do remember the game itself. I remember seeing or playing, actually, a Nintendo port of it. Absolutely. Even though they weren't able to get Donkey Kong from Nintendo, that was all wrapped up by Coleco, they did get Popeye from Nintendo. While Popeye was no Donkey Kong, it was a pretty decent hit in the arcades as well. Most sources peg sales at around 20,000 units, somewhere around there. You know, that was a good, solid hit as well. And so they got that license, which, hooray, good for them. They also made a deal with Konami. They got a couple of Konami games. They got Super Cobra, sequel to Scramble. They got a couple of their lesser hits, Tutankhamun and Gyrus. So they have that going for them. They got Mr. Dew's Castle from Universal. They concluded a deal with uh, Marvel Comics and got a Spider-Man license, created a Spider-Man game that was very similar to the Crazy Climber arcade game. 
They even, which is kind of funny, they even got a license with G.I. Joe, with Hasbro. I think it's so funny. You know, Hasbro's G.I. Joe is running neck and neck with Kenner's Star Wars, trying to be the king of the action figure industry. And it's so funny to me that then Hasbro would turn around and give Parker Brothers, owned by the same company as Kenner, the video game rights to G.I. Joe. Now, the G.I. Joe game they made wasn't a great game. That's not the point. I just think it's kind of hilarious that they would go to their biggest action figure competitor to make the G.I. Joe game. Makes you wonder if someone didn't even realize that Parker Brothers was owned by Tenor. Well, not owned by, but both owned by General Mills. (laughs) But yeah, kind of a weird situation. So they line up a bunch of licenses. They have a good team of programmers together. They do good ports of Popeye, Qbert, and the games look like they're going to sell pretty well in 1983, actually, all things considered. Remember, the market is falling apart, but there are some properties that still had the ability to rise above the mess and do some decent sales in 1983. We have to remember, cartridge sales actually rose in 83. A lot of that, as we've talked about in our mini crash episodes, was very illusory because the sales were rising because the prices were going down, down, down. And so people were buying more cartridges because you could buy two or three games for the price you used to buy one game. But still, there were some sales that year and Parker Brothers was primed to achieve some of those sales. The problem is, though, that Jim Fifield can't just have an okay sales year. This is his ticket to the top of the company. He needs to have fantastic results. So as Bill Bracey and the salespeople are running their projections, they realize that the goals that they had of selling $100 million or more in video games just wasn't going to work. They could read the writing on the wall. This whole thing was going to fall apart. It was just about to fall apart. We're going to make some money in it, but we're not going to make fantastical amounts of money in it. So Ranny Barton, president of Parker Brothers, who, by the way, was also very involved in the video game business. Basically, Stearns and Barton divided up all of the video game manufacturers between them, and Stearns did the negotiating with the domestic companies, the American companies, And Barton did all of the licensing and negotiating with the Japanese companies. So he's the guy that was going over to Konami, to Nintendo, to some of these companies and getting the licenses. It turned out that he was very good at that. I mean, it's not something he had ever done before, but it turned out he was very good at kind of charming these Japanese executives and working within the cultural milieu in Japan, which is very different than that in America, and was very successful at acquiring licenses. They were very much tag-teaming this. But when Randy Barton goes to Fifield and tells him, okay, we're going to make some money this year, but we're not going to make this much money, not as much as we've said we are. Fifield said, yes, we are. We're making that money. And you are forbidden to tell anyone higher than me in the company hierarchy that we are not going to make this much money. You are sticking with your projections no matter what. No one can know that you are having doubts about this entire business. That's a recipe for disaster. Oh, boy, is it ever. So they're forced to continue creating product and selling product based on marketing projections that are completely unrealistic. 
they know they're unrealistic. This isn't an Atari in 1982 situation where they just got so caught up in it and had such bad financial controls that they didn't realize what was about to happen to them. Parker Brothers knew what was about to happen, but because of corporate greed above them in the hierarchy, they had no way of stopping the train. Makes you wonder what would have happened if that wasn't going on and they could just report it up the chain of command and they'd be, hey, let's put the brakes on this a bit. We'll still make some money, but we're not going to lose the house, so to speak. Right. Of course, the market ended up going south even more than anyone would have ever thought. So I think even probably Barton's more conservative projections were probably going to end up being unrealistic as well. They were tied to the 2600 market specifically. That market was about to die a fiery death for lots of reasons. Absolutely, it was a bigger disaster than it otherwise would have been because of Fifield's refusal to hear anything else. Finally, at the end of his rope, Barton actually resigns as president of Parker Brothers. Now, remember, Barton is not just the president of Parker Brothers. Barton is the grandson of the founder of Parker Brothers. The fact that he resigned in pretty much protest of what's going on, that speaks volumes of his confidence in the company. Absolutely. And not only that, this is the end of family control at a company that has been under family control since its founding in 1883, 100 years earlier. Barton figures this is the only ACS has left up his sleeve. Fifield has already undermined his authority completely. He's brought new people into the company, and he's refusing to let Barton interact further up the management chain. He figures that his last chance is to resign and then hope that the people at corporate will look into why he resigned and realize that there is an absolute disaster about to happen, and they need to stop this. They need to stop this madness. Barton figured that probably his marketing guy, Ron Jackson, would be promoted to replace him as president of the company, which would be the logical thing to do based on his years of experience. Instead, Fifield promoted Richard Stearns, now 33 years old, (laughs) to be president of the company. Someone who had admittedly done very well with the video games, but was still very junior (laughs) to be taking over such a position. But you see, Fifield figured that Stearns was someone that he could control. They managed to keep all of this secret long enough that Fifield gets a promotion further up the chain. It's not quite the CEO's position yet, but he's promoted to executive vice president of non-food business. That's the next step up from the toy group. Parker Brothers is part of the toy group, which is part of the non-food group which is part of General Mills. His replacement, Jeff Jacobson, who had been his right-hand man at the toy group, replaces him as head of the toy group. And unlike Fifield, Jacobson finally gets to see these numbers and is like, oh my gosh, this is a disaster. We are in a huge disaster. He actually goes above Fifield's head straight to Atwater and says, Parker Brothers is in complete trouble. They are hemorrhaging money. This is a disaster. Oh my God, we're all going to die. This is in 1984 now that this finally happens. 
probably the one thing that saved the company is that they managed when things were starting to go bad. One of the sales guys by the name of Tom Dusenberry, who later would go on to be the president of Hasbro Interactive in the late 90s when Hasbro got very big in the video game business very briefly, came up with a plan to do a rebate where they would go to the stores, go to Toys R Us specifically, and say, okay, we know the video game product that you have is not selling very well. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to take back that product. Once you start taking returns, you're in for a world of hurt. In general, publishers resisted whenever possible taking returns. What we're going to do is we've got these new games with these hot new licenses, good solid licenses. We are going to give them to you for $9.99. And then we're going to give you a $10 rebate on each cartridge you purchase. Basically, they're giving away their next round of cartridges for free. So they get the money. They have to fill out a rebate form for each cartridge and mail it in and then hope they get money back. I mean, these kind of rebates don't work the way that, you know, consumer rebates work, where the manufacturer is trying to do everything in their power to make it as difficult as possible for the consumer to redeem the rebate so that the rebate's never actually redeemed. The way rebates work at this level is very different than the way rebates work at the consumer level. They can't give the product away for free. I don't know all the financial details, but if they gave it away for free, that would run afoul of certain laws and regulations related to dumping product. They could get in serious trouble with the SEC. They could open themselves up to lawsuits from shareholders, et cetera, et cetera, if they just gave away the product for free. To make everything above board, they had to technically sell the product to Toys R Us. But then they basically said, we're selling it to you, but we're giving you a rebate for the same value, so you pay nothing. And they're really honoring this. They're not hoping that Toys R Us forgets to fill out the slip in the package. It's a real honest-to-God rebate. Dusenberry, when he got approval to do this stock balancing plan, projected that it would cost the company $600,000. It ended up costing the company millions of dollars. But those millions of dollars in losses were still not nearly as bad as if they had been forced by Toys R Us to eat all of their old inventory that wasn't moving on the shelves. It allowed them to amortize these losses in such a way that the losses weren't nearly as disastrous as if everything was sitting on shelves. Because remember, if they couldn't move this product, if they were just stuck with this product the way that Atari had been stuck with their product, they would have had to pay the warehousing costs on all of this product. That's where the expense is in any retail product. It's not in the making of the product. It's not in the shipping of the product. It's in the warehousing of the product. So by offering this rebate, first of all, they keep Toys R Us happy and they stop Toys R Us from trying to return their older product that was already sitting on the shelves. Second, they don't have to pay the warehousing costs for all of this product that's not moving. They get to move it along. They get to report that they sold a lot of product which can boost investor confidence when it comes time for things like stock market price and all of that for General Mills. 
as counterintuitive as it seems, it is better to give this product away than not give it away. That's probably what stopped this from spiraling completely out of control, unlike, say, Atari, which was never nearly so successful with stock balancing and ended up with lots of product and warehouses that had to be dealt with in a variety of unpleasant ways to get rid of it. Parker Brothers comes out of it very wounded, very hurt, but it doesn't come out of it about to completely die. Just to kind of bring this to kind of a conclusion, in January 1985, because of the ongoing losses with the Parker Brothers video game stuff, General Mills does decide to divest itself of all of its toy companies. They were hoping to find a buyer. They weren't successful in finding a buyer, so they decided that they would do a spinoff of the toy business into a new company. And of all people, they were going to put Jim Fifield in charge of this new company. Jim, I hit all the disasters so that I could move up the corporate ladder. Fifield is going to get to be the CEO of his own company. Well, I guess he got what he always wanted. He almost did because he had some plans that weren't popular at all. He wanted to merge Parker Brothers into Kenner rather than keeping them as separate entities, which nobody really wanted. And I think finally the full extent of the damage that had been done during his tenure was finally uncovered. So he ends up being asked to resign in May 1985 instead. He is replaced by Ron Jackson. Jackson had left the toy part of the business after, uh, well, even before Barton resigned, he had left the toy part of the business but he didn't leave General Mills. He had gone to take charge of Talbot's, the uh, retail clothing store, which was also a General Mills subsidiary. Now they finally bring Jackson back. Jackson presides over a spinoff of a new company, brand new corporation, Kenner Parker Toys, which continues very much as it did under General Mills, both entities operating separately of each other, both having their own executive staffs, just reporting in to the head of the overall company. That persists for a few years. They become profitable again, but this is the 1980s. This is the era of corporate raiders. This is the era of buying up companies, combining them in weird ways, whether the companies want to be or not. It's a little different from the conglomerating era of the 60s and 70s. They end up becoming a takeover target from New World Productions, which is a Hollywood entertainment company. Not wanting to be taken over by this company completely outside of their field, they end up being purchased instead by Tonka. They bring in Tonka as a white knight to buy them instead. That ends up being a really bad idea because Kenner Parker was actually a lot bigger company than Tonka was. Tonka had to go into serious debt to buy Kenner Parker. Tonka basically chokes on the purchase, which is why in 1991, Hasbro is able to come in and buy up the whole thing, which is why Clue, Monopoly, Nerf, Tonka Trucks, and everything else are now Hasbro properties and not Parker Brothers properties or Kenner properties or Tonka properties. All of that last little bit was really a, a consequence of the video game crash. If the video game crash hadn't happened, General Mills probably would not have divested at that time. It probably would have divested eventually because all of those old school conglomerates really did divest eventually. 
they probably wouldn't have been looking to sell at the moment they did. They came out of it in much better shape than Mattel did or than Milton Bradley did, some of the other toy companies that got involved in the video game industry. I think in part because they were so successful doing the stock rebalancing and in part because they did have some of the last licensed properties that still had a place in the marketplace. Qbert was a big deal. Nintendo's Popeye was a big deal. They had just enough product in 1983 to kind of squeak by, especially with some of their rebate programs. In the end, they were divested and kind of cast out amongst the wolves, which led to the New World Takeover attempt and the eventual disappearance of the entity. For one brief shining moment, they were one of the big companies in electronic games, both in handheld and tabletop electronics with Merlin and in video games with product like Frogger, The Empire Strikes Back, and Qbert. Pretty crazy to imagine. I wonder how much better they would have been able to come out on the other end and if General Mills would have kept hold of them if they were able to report up and say, hey, we need to put the brakes on here now because these projections aren't matching up. We can see this industry is going to go down. We know video games in the home are going down. We need to back off from this. It might have helped a little bit, but as I said, even they didn't realize quite how bad it was. I mean, remember, Tom Dusenberry thought that their rebate program was going to cost them $600,000, and he was off by an order of magnitude. True. They might have glided down a little more gracefully. Not by much. Yeah, they were still sadly tied to a product that just suddenly collapsed, which was the Atari 2600. Since that pretty much wraps up Parker Brothers and we get to hear another story of how Atari took down all the world, (laughs) obviously we have to go into Atari next, right? No, not Atari. I think we've covered Atari quite enough. But you know who we haven't covered quite enough, Jeffrey? Who? Nintendo. Wait, Nintendo? That's right. You might say we've done Nintendo episodes and Nintendo and Sega episodes, and NES episodes, and Gunpei Yokoi episodes. What are you talking about? But I bet you we've still done fewer episodes on Nintendo than Atari. One key period that we haven't really honed in on yet is that period between 1983 and 1985, before the NES launched in New York and then started to take the world by storm. The period of time when Nintendo was taking the Japanese market by storm. Now, we have talked about the birth of the Famicom within the larger context of the Japanese industry. So there will be a little bit of overlap there, though at this point, we've done so many episodes, it's hard to avoid any overlap whatsoever. We're going to take a really in-depth look at just how and why Nintendo got into the console business, how they ended up developing the Famicom, and more importantly, how the Famicom market developed in Japan during the years of the Famicom boom, which is generally described as being between the years 1983 and 1986. We may even be able to milk this into two episodes, one on the birth of the system and one on the boom itself, but we'll see. I like to talk. Sometimes I talk too much. We'll see. But still, this will be the most in-depth look we have done yet on Nintendo in this very early period of its Japanese dominance as opposed to its American dominance or its later fights with Sega for market share and, and all of that kind of good thing. 
I think a lot of people really forget that the NES is not just a American console that came about around the same time that it came out in Japan. It really was something that was developed in Japan, was really big in Japan for quite a while before they even thought, let's bring it over here to the United States and see how this thing does. Really, by the time it hit the United States, as we've said before in other episodes, if you're not aware, it's been out there and you're talking about older technology, arguably late 70s technology. Absolutely, or or early late or early 80s at, at the latest. And one thing that I'm not sure all of our Western listeners know either is that the Famicom really did peak in Japan the year it was released nationally in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't have some decent sales on certain things in 87 or 88 or whatever, but really, the Famicom boom period was 83 to 86. It's underexplored in Western sources. It's underexplored in our podcast, even though we've touched on it. Since we've last looked at it, I've gotten some better sources, including the books written by the great French Nintendo scholar Florent Gorge, we can really do a better and more in-depth look on that market than we have ever done in the podcast before, even if we've touched on it. So I think we can do something really special on this, either in one or two parts, depending on how much I decide to carry on. Okay, we will explore the Famicom in Japan next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. In today's secret message, it has been ordered. <laughs>